I am going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather, to him who has loved me with an everlasting love. These are the final words of John Owen, words spoken just before he died in August 1683. We generally give attention to the last words of people, perhaps because instinctively we feel that the approach of death has the tendency to crystallize things, to bring the mind to bear on the things that are truly important. We listen to the last words because we assess that they have something to teach us about how we ought to live in this world. We read earlier the last words of David. Here in the book of 1 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles compose one book in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament. In fact, the book of Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And we notice that if you read in 1 Chronicles, you will find that the first nine chapters are concerned with genealogies, going back to the time of Adam, even to the restoration of Israel. In chapter 10 to, at least in chapter 10 to 36, we have, or chapter 10 to chapter 2 Chronicles, chapter 10 to 2 Chronicles chapter 10 and verse 36, we see that the writer emphasizes the Davidic kingdom and the kingdom of Solomon. And then from 2 Chronicles 10 to the end, there is this narrative of the time of Rehoboam and the restoration of the tribes. When one reads through 1 and 2 Chronicles, it becomes apparent that the chronicler is quite concerned with the monarchy of David and Solomon, and he pays particular attention to David. In fact, when he records David's history, he does so selectively. Much of the details regarding David's mistakes and sins are overlooked because they do not fall within the purpose of the chronicler. And what he does say is that David is God's anointed king, God's king through whom God reigns. He explains that the reason for Israel's difficulties and their exile is due to their disobedience to the covenant of God. But we find particularly that in Chronicles, at least one Chronicles, the story of David does entail David's preparation for the building of the temple. David had taken the ark in Jerusalem. It was in a tent, and he was in a fine house. And one day he said to himself, how is it possible that I'm living in such a wonderful house and the 
ark has such a shabby dwelling. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. So he calls up Nathan and says, I want to build the Lord a house. And initially, Nathan in chapter 17 agrees that he should build a house until the Lord says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I will build you a house. And the reason the Lord refused David was because we learned later David was a man of blood, a man of war. God, in fact, stated that his descendant, his successor, Solomon, would build him a temple. But David didn't just stop there. He had his intention on building a house for God, for the ark of the Lord. And what he then did was that he made elaborate preparations for the temple. We notice from chapter 17 and onwards to chapter 28 that David organized the Levites, the musicians, the priests, the gatekeepers, the treasurers, the military commanders. He began to put things in place for Solomon. And one of the things he did is that he gave Solomon an elaborate, detailed description, architectural plans for the building of the temple. Where did David get the plans for the building of the temple? They were revealed to him by God miraculously. And so David made preparation. Now in chapter 29, David is assembled in Jerusalem with the leaders and the commanders of the people. Thousands and thousands of Israels have gathered in, in Jerusalem. And David in chapter 29, in the first nine verses, tell the people of the preparations he had made for the building of the temple when Solomon began to reign. He tells them about the personal donation he had made from his bank account that he had given a vast sum of money or gold from Ophir and silver, the, most, the, the finest gold he had given. Someone calculated based on the weight of the gifts that David had given to the building of the temple that he had given approximately, in our currency, $3 billion. And he challenged the people that they were to consecrate themselves. That is, that they were to give. And we note that they gave a considerable amount of gold and precious material for the building of the temple. They gave beyond his wildest expectation in verses 7 and 8. The next section, verses 10 to 19, which we read, constitute a prayer of David to the Lord. And the chapter concludes with celebrations by the people in, in Jerusalem, the coronation of Solomon and the death of David. But what I want to do is to ask you to look with me at the prayer of David as we, we find it revealed to us in verses 10 to 19 of the passage. What are the weighty words? What are the words of consequence? Words of theological import that he leaves for us today to consider. Well, I want us to suggest first that as you look at this prayer, you will note that the prayer emphasizes a word of consequence, something of import. And the first thing that we learn from the prayer in verses 10 to 19 is that we see the centrality of adoration to God for His greatness. 
when you read this prayer, the first thing that jumps out of you is that this is partly a prayer of adoration to God for His greatness. After the extreme generous giving of the people, when you combine David's gift of gold, silver, and precious material, and the people's gift, it is said that what we have was about $6 billion of contribution. Three from David and three from the people. And David is ecstatic. And he begins to pray. And the first thing he does is adoration, praise. You see, prayer consists of a number of elements. Leslie Allen, the Old Testament commentator, says we may use the acronym ACTS to speak of the elements of prayer. Prayer consists of adoration. It consists of confession. It consists of thanksgiving. And it consists of supplication. Now, not all of these elements will be found in this prayer, but the majority of them are here. And the first is adoration. He begins to address God. And notice what he does in verse 10. David blessed the Lord. He addresses God. Barak means to give praise on bended knee. He says, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. He's addressing God, God who is known to him personally, because not only is God the one who is the maker of heaven and earth, but God is a personal God, the Lord God, the God of Israel, and our Father forever and ever. And we note then his blessing or adoration of God. He goes on, he says in verse 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. He's blessing the Lord. He's praising God. And David draws attention to God's greatness. In effect, he's blessing and praising God for his greatness. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. Verse 11. He draws attention to two aspects of God's greatness. The first, then, is the greatness of God's being, of God's person. He's identified the Lord as the God of Israel and the everlasting Father. And then he says, yours is the greatness, God Allah. And this term, God Allah, great, refers to height. God is great. God is ex exalted above the heavens. This is a term that is used often of God in the Scriptures. In Psalm 145, verse 3, the psalmist says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable, cannot be fathomed. This term also describes the mighty acts of God. In that seminal passage in chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles, in verse 19, David reflects upon God's covenant with him, and he uses the language of greatness because God had entered into a covenant with him, he says there that God is great. In the same chapter, in verse 21, he calls God, God great because of his deliverance, his redemption of Israel from Egypt. And he says, 
And who is like your people, Lord? 1 Chronicles 17, verse 21. Who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for yourself a name, a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. He's saying, you are great. Not only because you've entered into covenant with me, but you're great because you have delivered your people. You have driven out nations before them. You have given their land. The writer is piling up terms. He's using five terms to describe the greatness of God. First is Gadolah. God is exalted. God is high and lifted up. He says, yours is the greatness. Secondly, he says, yours is the power. God is great, and God is powerful. You see, he's called El Gibor, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of power. It means that to him belongs might and strength, that he has all the capacity and resources to accomplish what he wills, that there is nothing too difficult or hard for him that all things are possible. He is a God of power. Jesus, when he refers to God in the New Testament, in Matthew 26, about his coming, he could use power as a circumlocution, as another name for God himself. He says, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, sitting at the right hand of power is sitting at the hand, right hand of God. You see, power is synonymous with God. And the writer says, yours is the greatness and the power. The prophet Isaiah says of the Lord, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name and by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. You see, God is not only powerful in creating the world, he's powerful in sustaining the creation. Yours is the greatness and the power. And third, he describes the being of God as glory, and yours is the glory. The term tiparet is a synonym for kabad, glory. It refers to the beauty of God, his brilliance, his dignity, his weightiness. When we think of the glory of an ancient monarch, we thought not only of his royal attire, but that his, peer, his, his bearing, his person carries weight. And God is glorious. In fact, glory in the scripture is often used of the brilliance, of the outshining of God. God's character and nature is excellent. And light or glory is the depiction of his character. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. He's describing God's greatness and he just can't find enough words to describe it. So he says, and yours is the victory. It is a term that means everlastingness, perpetuity. God is the one who is victorious because he always outlasts his enemies. He lives on and on, and he does not die. Yours is the victory. And he says, fifthly, yours is the majesty. 
here majesty and glory are synonymous terms. So he's praising the greatness of God, his power, his glory, his victory, his majesty. He's praising God for the greatness of his being. But secondly, he praises the Lord for the greatness of his status. Because as you read further in the text, he says, For all, verse 11, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. He's now referring to the status of God. And he says, you are great, not only because you are a God of greatness and power and majesty, but you are a God who created the world. All that is in the heaven and earth is yours. He's saying then that God is great because of his unique status as creator. All that is in the heavens, everything on earth, come from him. This greatness, you see, for the writer is not abstract or theoretical. It is manifested in his work of creation. Everything in creation, each galaxy, every particle in the universe, every creature on earth and in the sea, God says, this is mine. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. You see the greatness of his status because He's the unique creator. But he also refers to the greatness of God's status. Not only is he the unique creator, but he is the sovereign king. For he continues, yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. God is not merely creator. He's king. And he's not the deist that people in former ages spoke of. One who winds up the universe and goes off and leaves it to unravel on its own. Who turns away and leaves us to do our own thing. No, he reminds us, yours is a kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. You see, God is great because he's creator, but also because he is sovereign king. That he rules. That his will is done in the armies of heaven and among men. That there is one true ruler and king. It's the Lord. Yours is the kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all. But you see something of the greatness of his status. For not only is he the unique creator and the sovereign king. He is the gracious benefactor. He continues. He says... In your hand, in verse 12, is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. This is God who rules, but it is from his hand he raises one up and gives another strength. You see, this God is the one who provides strength for his people. Everything good, wealth, health, honor, wisdom, security, food, shelter, clothing, Everything comes from his hand. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So he begins his prayer by adoring, by praising the greatness of God's being. God who he says, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. And he praises God because of his great status as the creator 
and the king and the benefactor, the one who blesses his people and gives them their needs. But we see something of the consequential work of the writer here in Chronicles. Not only does he teach of the centrality of adoration to God for his greatness, but his prayer, secondly, demonstrates the necessity of giving thanks to God for his love and kindness. So he begins with adoration for God's greatness. But then he switches to thanksgiving. He mentions in verse 13, Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name, your glorious character. We thank you, he says. That's the sign that he's moving from adoration to thanksgiving. We thank you, our God. The term thank yada simply means to confess. You see, thanksgiving is a confession. It's declaring that we have received the things we have from a gracious God. And this is what he does in thanksgiving. Now, therefore, O Lord, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. But what he does is not merely in this prayer give thanks to God, but he also underlines the nature of thanksgiving. And there are at least three significant things we need to see regarding giving thanks. First, he makes it clear that giving thanks or thanksgiving begins with a sense of personal unworthiness. You notice how he puts it in verse 14. Having said to the Lord, we give thanks to you and praise your glorious name. Then in verse 14, he asked a rhetorical question. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? You see, thanksgiving begins with a sense of personal unworthiness. David asks, who am I and who are my people? He announces thanksgiving with self-deprecating language, language that lowers himself. In fact, this is not strange because he has done this already in, earlier in this book, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18. He says, for instance, then David went in and sat before the Lord and says, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Who am I that we could give? And who are my people that we can give so willingly? This question falls jarringly on the airs of 21st century man. Our generation wouldn't understand this question. You know, we, we live in a society that tells us don't let anybody put you down. And you, don't ever put yourself down. In fact, our mentors coach us how to talk ourselves up, especially in interviews. How to take creative license with our resumes so that we can accentuate our strengths and successes and downplay our weaknesses and failures. We have been trained in this world to sell ourselves, to think great about ourselves. But David takes a completely different tact. He comes before the Lord and he says, 
who am I, Lord, and who are my people, that we should be able to give so willingly to you? Well, we may have said, well, David, don't you know who you are? I mean, you don't really do that with rhetorical questions, right? But we could have said, David, don't you know who you are? You are the greatest man right now in the ancient Near Eastern world. You are the king of Israel. You have beaten all the nations who have come before you. God has given you the chief and foremost station right now at this time in the world. And there is no other nation on the planet like Israel. But David doesn't do that. You see, he compares himself to God. And he says, who am I and who are my people? Why does David take this view, this lowly view of self? Well, in the next verse, that is in verse 16, he will go on to show us. That is in verse 15, he says, For we are aliens, foreigners, and pilgrims. We are temporary residents before you, as were all our fathers, and our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope, that is, without security. What does he do? He's coming to give thanks, and he begins with a sense of his unworthiness. He says, we are nothing. He compares human existence to travelers who stop briefly at a place. This world is but a pit stop, a temporary pause. He characterizes human life as the intangible shadow without permanence, without anchor, without security. In fact, he would also describe human life as a handbreadth, just a very short space of time. The prophet Isaiah will go farther and describe our lives not just as a handbreadth or as a shadow, but like grass. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You see, if we are to truly give thanks, we must have a sense of unworthiness that there is no intrinsic worth or value to us apart from that which God gives. That in our best moment, we are dying men and women. If our time here is four score and ten, it is but a little moment and then we are gone. We bloom and blossom like the flower, and we are cut down. And David, when he looked at the fact that he is like vapor, like the mist, like grass, like a handbreadth, like a fleeting shadow, he is amazed that God would have blessed them and given them so much. And so he begins to give thanks with the question, but who am I and who are my people? Thanksgiving commences with an understanding of our unworthiness. It begins 
with a sense of our unworthiness that we are nothing. But secondly, you will note that thanksgiving is rooted in an awareness of our indebtedness. You notice in verse 16 how he goes on. Oh Lord our God, all this abundance, that is the six billion dollars that they had given. All this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand. And is all your own. What is he saying? He's saying we are indebted. This treasure that we are able to give to you. We offer it to you because you have given it to us. We have received it from your hands and we give back to you what is yours. You see, everything comes from God. All that we possess come from him. Thanksgiving is rooted in an understanding of our indebtedness that everything that we possess, everything that we own, we have received it as a gift from the hand of the Almighty. But thirdly, thanksgiving reveals itself that it requires a heart stirred by grace. In verse 17, the psalmist says, I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things, and now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. See, David knows that God examines the interior, the heart, the place of our thinking and our deciding and our feeling, and that God is pleased when our hearts are upright, that is righteous in his sight. And he talks about the fact that he has given willingly here in verse 17. In fact, there's an emphasis on willing giving. In verse 6, the people gave willing. In verse 9, there's willing. And in verse 14 and verse 17, so there's an overabundance of emphasis upon willing in the text. But this condition of the heart that David recognizes, that it is in the uprightness, the righteousness of his heart, that he's able to offer willingly, he does not necessarily take credit for that heart that is upright that permits him to give willingly. You see, only grace can account for a heart that gives willingly. And so you see, thanksgiving is rooted in an awareness of our indebtedness that we are nothing, we are like a shadow, we are like pilgrims, we are like strangers. It is rooted in the awareness that we are indebted. All that we have, we have received from the hand of God. And thanksgiving requires a heart stirred by grace. A heart that is upright, a heart that wants to please God, but only a heart that God can give. We are looking at this word of consequence by David through the chronicler. And we notice that he begins with the centrality of adoration. He emphasized the necessity of thanksgiving to God. But thirdly, you will note that in the prayer, it highlights the cruciality of supplication to God for a devoted heart. There's a movement away from adoration and thanksgiving now to supplication. Supplication is to beseech, to ask, to plead with God for help. And we see that in verses 18 and 19. The psalmist David prays and he says, Oh Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people. Keep this generous spirit. Fix their heart toward you and give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statues to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. 
David knows quite well that adoration to God is important and central, and that thanksgiving is part and parcel of our obligation to God because of His goodness to us. But David knows that if, if we are to be people who are adoring God and giving thanks, there needs to be a heart behind all of that, a particular quality of the heart, an inward transformation. And so he prays, first of all, for the people. He says, essentially, Lord, guard their heart, that they might continue in this vein of being generous. And then he says, Lord, fix their heart. Same language used by David when he talked about God establishing his throne that is not moved. He's saying, Lord, as you have established my throne, you have made it secure and fixed. Fix, secure, and establish the heart of your people. He's asking God, in essence, to direct the heart of Israel to himself. He prays, secondly, for Solomon. And what does he pray? He prays for a particular heart. He prays that God would give him, in verse 17, a heart, he says. He says, he prays in verse 17, give, in verse 19, give my son Solomon a loyal heart. The Septuagint, the Old Testament translation in Greek says a good heart. But loyal heart really reflects the Hebrew which is a whole heart. He's asking God, give my son a whole heart. He's not asking a perfect heart because it is not possible that we could be perfect in this life. But he's asking God for an integrated heart. What we call an undivided heart. What we call a single heart. He's asking God to, to move in Solomon that he would have a united, integrated heart. A heart that is single, wanting to please and obey God. Because if Solomon is to do God's will, do his statutes and his testimonies, he needed to have a heart that is loyal towards God. And what David recognized is that loyalty and adherence to God and obedience to God does not come naturally or automatically from men. It needs a heart that has been changed, a heart that is single in its desire to please God. And so he prays, Give my son a whole heart that he might obey you, that he might do your commandments and build the temple. What must we take away from this passage this morning? Well, there are a number of things I want to leave with you. First, you cannot but hear the echo of the chronicler, though dead now still speaks. And his message to us in this day and age is that God deserves doxology or praise. It is fair to say that our generation is fiercely committed to a metaphysical naturalism. And by metaphysical naturalism, I'm talking about that stance that says that there is nothing in this world but the material. And there are no explanations for the phenomena of life but that which is natural. This kind of position rules out the existence of a creator, rules out the existence of God. And when God is no longer present 
in the mind of this generation, there is no one left to praise but self. But the writer, the chronicler, recording the words of David, reminds us that there is a God who is above us all and he deserves praise. He deserves doxology. And when you read through the scriptures, what you find is that the great men and women of the past, they were great in praising God. It is true of Moses. It is true of David and of Hannah. It is true of Zechariah. It is true of the great saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were praising God. They were people of doxology. You see, the Westminster Confession of Faith asked the question, what is the chief end of man? What are we here for? What were we made for? It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You have a lot of people who are walking around who say, well, I don't know what my purpose in life is. Well, it's very simple. You're to glorify God. He said, we are created for the glory of God. It's interesting that our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord's Prayer that he gave to the disciples, when he concluded the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, there is intimation, there is a hinting that he's reflecting on this prayer of David because he ends the prayer. Thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. And I know that that, that verse is disputed there, but I would agree with one great Old Testament, New Testament scholar that says our Lord must end the, the prayer with the doxology. It has its rightful place. You see, our Lord is pointing us even there in Matthew 6, to praise. And when you read in Revelation and chapter 5, and you ask, what is the chief business of Christians in heaven? What do we go to heaven to do? Well, I will tell you that what we do in heaven chiefly is to praise God. You see something of the praise in heaven in Revelation 5 verse 13, where John in Apocalypse says, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. What David through the chronicler says to us is that you and I must be a people of doxology of praise. You see, he says to the Lord as he comes, yours, O Lord, is the greatness. And you may ask me, but how do I praise God? How do I know about the greatness of God? Well, you are not called to enter into intellectual gymnastics, trying to figure out the things that are incomprehensible for men. You and I are not asked to look at the things that God has not revealed. If you want to know the greatness of God, you must look at the works of God. John Calvin says the greatness of God is seen in his works. And what you must do is look at the works of God in creation. That every galaxy, every planet has been created by God. That every fish in the sea is the work on the hand of God. It is he who keeps the sea in its right balance. It is he who controls the flares of the sun. It is he who guides the eagle in its flight. And by the way, who numbers every hair on our head. The pastor just told me on the weekend that hair is overrated. 
but it is the Lord who counts them and numbers them. We see the greatness of God in creation. It is by his almighty power. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. You want to know something of the power of God, you'll look at the work of God in history. How with a mighty and a powerful hand, he brought Israel out of Egypt, opened up the Red Sea and brought them across safely. Not one of them died in the journey across the Red Sea. That's power for you. It is he who carried them for 40 years in the wilderness and their shoes were not ruined. The clothes did not fall off their backs because he's a God of power. It is he who fought their battles and preserved them in the midst of their enemies. And you and I know something of the greatness of God. We can say with David, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power because we have known the power of God in our lives. It is he who has delivered us from our sins. It is he who has carried us thus far. And even though we have turned aside a million times, even though we have wandered down dark and dead alleys, it is he who has rescued us and brought us back. We see the power of God in preserving us and keeping us on this narrow path to glory. We can say then and ought to say, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, because there is none higher, and there is none greater. It is to you who rule over the universe. You are doing your will in our lives. You are working out your plans. And every Christian must pause. We must come to him and say, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Because you are kind and compassionate and merciful and long-suffering and good You have exhibited your care and your patience. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. This is what we need. Are not complainers. What we need are people who have seen God and seen his greatness in his works and praise him. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. That's the refrain of our hearts to a people who have seen God's glory. But this writer, the chronicler, tells us that not only does God deserve glory, he deserves thanksgiving. He deserves thanksgiving. And thanksgiving begins with an awareness that we are unworthy. But what we have, we have received from God. We don't deserve it. We are unworthy. If we are really really going to give thanks, we must ask the question, who am I? You know, one little girl went to school and the teacher was asking all the children in the classroom, please stand up and identify yourself. Tell us who you are. And, you know, going around and a child got up and said, well, I, I, you know, I'm Jane. And we'll get up and say, you know what, I, I'm Crystal, and they're giving their names, and I'm John. And comes this little girl and says, she gets up and says, well, I am beautiful. And the teacher was shocked, and the teacher you know, really? Is that your name? Yes, she says, yes, that's my name. My mom calls me that every day. I think that if you look at yourself, you will find a lot of things that are beautiful, things that are commendable. 
After all, we are made in the image of God. But that's not the whole story. We are dying people. Not only that, we are sinners. We have offended our God and we don't deserve mercy. And so if we are to be thankful, we must know that whatever we receive, we receive it as undeserving sinners who instead of goodness deserve condemnation and wrath. But if we are to be thankful, we must know that God has blessed us with an abundance of things. The jobs we have, the money we have in the bank, the spouses we have, all of these come from the hand of God. And it means that we must praise God not only and thank Him, not only at Thanksgiving, but at Christmas and at Easter. And by the way, every day of our lives. Because every day we receive new blessings from the hand of God. The very fact that your heart is is beating and you are breathing is a sign of grace. But you and I today have a special reason to thank God. We have received from him the greatest of gifts. That is why Paul says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift, who is Christ. When you compare all that God has done for you, nothing can be equated to the gift of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Christmas, what we celebrate is God's kindness in giving us one to die for our sins. We are to be thankful. And whether you get another Christmas present or not, you have gotten the biggest one. It doesn't matter. That's God's gift to you of his son. My friends, you must thank God for Jesus. And thanksgiving must not only be in words, but it must be in deeds. We must give of our treasury, of our money. We must give of our resources that the cause of Jesus Christ that the church might be built, that the gospel might advance, that glory may be given to Jesus Christ. I heard of the epitaph that adorns the grave of one of the earls of Devonshire in England. And the epitaph on that grave reads, What we gave, we have. What we spent, we had. What we kept, we lost that the only thing that really matters in this life is what we have done. The resources that God has given you, the monies you have are not to secure your future, but ultimately to be used for the glory of God, for only God can secure our future. But my friends, I would not be proper and correct if I were to leave you without saying that this passage not only tells us that God deserves doxology and that God deserves thanksgiving, especially for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage reminds us that God requires devotion. David prayed for the people, Lord, give them a fixed heart. He prays for his son, Lord, give him a whole heart. And we need a fixed heart. We need a whole heart, a single heart, a heart that beats and is delighted to do the will of God, a heart that is 
always seeking to please God. What we need is an interior change, a new heart. A heart that is not dragged away by the love of the world or the love of pleasure or the love of sin. But a heart that is steady and steadfast and fixed on God. A heart that will not deviate to the left or the right, but say, I have made the Lord my claim. I have staked my claim with him and I will not be moved. We need a fixed heart, a whole heart. And therefore, when we pray, we may say, Lord, give me a new heart. Give me a fixed heart. That nothing is before you. That everything is subdued to you. That I will bow to no addiction. I will seek no pleasure. I will put no thing above you or person above you. I'll be fixed on you. Because ultimately, if you're to live a life that is pleasing to God, a life of adoration, a life that is thankful, it must flow from a heart where God is chief. May God give you a heart where he's central, a single heart. Ask him, Lord, make me a devoted servant of yours. And it is he who works in you both to will and do, and he will give it to you according to his grace, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Pray with me, friends. Oh Lord, we cannot praise you sufficiently. There is no word that we can find that can capture how marvelous you are. But you are the delight of our hearts. You are our boast that the King of glory is our God. We thank you that you're reigning in heaven and reigning for our good. And we say to you, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. And we look for the day, Lord, when we will be able to be gathered around your throne where we will cast our crowns before you and say, Lord, you are worthy to receive all honor and glory and power and might. We pray, Lord, that we may see your glory. Show us your glory. Show us your glory in creation, in history, in providence, and in our lives. We pray, O God, that we might forever be grateful. Grateful for Christ and for the cross. Work in us, we pray, that from this moment onward we might be a people of one thing. That if we were to be examined, and we were to be asked what is it that makes us tick, that we may be able to say it is Christ. Grant that we will be able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Forgive us, Lord, for being too sold, for being divided in heart, or unite our hearts to live for you and to praise you. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.